Good evening, Mercy View. My name is Christina, and I'm a partner here. Tonight, I will be reading from Romans 12, 3 through 8. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. How are we doing? Good to see you. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View again. Uh, I'm Brad, one of the pastors here, and uh, honored to be able to open up the Word of God uh, with you. Uh, one of the greatest thrills that I have uh, enjoyed over the last few years of my life has been something that I never really thought that I would uh, do. Um, not, not on this level, but I just, you know, I, I knew I would br probably be involved at some point with one of my kiddos in sports, but the, the thrill has been to actually also coach, uh, and to just build into kids and young men's lives and serve them, disciple them and their families. Um, one of the very like first experiences I had with this organization that we, uh, partner with to do this um, was a pre-practice speech that has left an indelible impression upon me. I, I, I stepped into this, uh, this, this uh, coaching staff and the head coach uh, got up in front of his team and said, okay, before we get going here uh, this evening, I want to remind you of a few things. Uh, when we go and play a game this week, you're going to wear a jersey. And because you're a part of this organization, it goes without saying, this is a Christian organization, it goes without saying that you, first of all, and always represent God. And I think all the kids were like, well, yeah, I guess I, that makes sense. We're, we're a part of this Christian organization. So, but I want you to look at the uh, very front of your jersey as well. What does it say? And it was the name of, of our team. Because not only do you represent God... You represent this organization that you're a part of. You, you, you represent this team that you're a part of. So what you do matters. What you do is connected to what the team does. Then he said on the back of your jersey on, on Friday night, there'll be a name. And that name represents your family, your family name. And what you do on the football field matters because you are also representing your family. In other words, don't think of what you're getting ready to go do this week when you go play this game as somehow being an individual thing. What you do is always connected to others. How you do what you do in a team matters. It's connected. It joins you with the other people. If you do your job and the person next to you does their job and so on, there can be success. But when you decide to care more about your name, not to represent your family, but because of yourself, 
you're going to get off track. And that's actually because you're connected to the team, it's going to adversely affect the team. So you represent God. You represent this team and this organization. You also represent your family. And you represent all of those people as a team. Our spiritual lives are exactly like that. Let me tell you why. Some of us have this mentality about our our walk with the Lord. It is a personal, individual, you know, relationship that I I have with God. My, My journey with God in life spiritually is to figure out my relationship with Him and work that out. And that's pretty much it. But here's the problem with that. That is not how the Bible talks about how you and I are to walk forward in our spiritual journey. In particular, in the New Testament, in the letters and the writings of of Paul, Paul is always writing about what we should be thinking about, what we should be pursuing in the context of something in particular. He is, he's writing to churches. In other words, he's writing to a team of people to say, hey, let's, let's think about who God is deeply. Let's think about who you are and the way that you live. And then let's, let's also talk about how we do those things together. And the book of Romans that, that we are in, the series we're in, is no exception to that. Paul is writing to a church in Rome. And as we said last week, we've begun a, a new series looking at the second half of the book of Romans where Paul is actually taking the deep theology and doctrine of God from the first half of Romans, Romans chapter 1 through 11 and saying, now as we finish this book, I want to tell you how this stuff gets worked out in life. But he's not just saying this is how you work it out personally with God. He's saying this is how we work this stuff out here together in a, a local church like Mercy View. And so for the, for the next few weeks, and then um, we're going to probably take a break and grab the rest of Romans towards the end of the year, Paul's intent is really twofold. Yes, it is to help us go, what are the things that I need to be thinking about in my own personal relationship with God? It's no less than that. Paul is wanting to always remind us, and he will tonight, you heard Christina read it, it's in the context of a team. And actually tonight, Paul is going to say, the way that, that you and I think matters to another partner in this, this church. In other words, the way that I think and the way that that thinking then um, leads to action, Christian action, either helps or hurts the church. It either helps or hurts the team because a team is always connected. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Romans uh, chapter 12. That's where we're going to be tonight. You actually heard Christina read, uh, uh, I think it was verses 3 through 8. I'm going to, full disclosure, I was telling Pastor John this before I came here. I didn't get past verse 3. So all of tonight is just really, we're going to look at, at Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and then we're going to work out how we're going to um, catch up here. We'll, we'll obviously be setting the stage for tonight for some of the things that Paul is going to talk about in verses 4 through 8 that's to come. But for tonight, we're going to look at just uh, 
there at uh, there at verse three. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open there. Um, in a lot of ways, what what happened to me this week as I was preparing this is I realized that um, the issue that Paul is talking about in verse three is important enough that that we need to just kind of hang here um, tonight because really what Paul is doing now is starting to work out last week's sermon. Last week, Paul said, hey, you're a living sacrifice. The way that you worship God is to offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice. And um, what he's going to do now is start to give us some practical implications of that. And again, that's a lot of what the last part of the book of Romans is all about. Now, again, Paul could have started this part of the, the, the book here, this chapter, by saying, hey, here is how you need to work this out personally. And of course, what we're talking about can be worked out personally, but I think it's really interesting that Paul starts by talking really to an attitude or a way of thinking that the entire church needs to embody because they are are, our teammates. And so Paul is wanting to frame for us, I think, the context right off the bat for where uh, this should happen, or maybe better, from within uh, the context, it should happen. This living sacrifice is to be worked out. So let me let me say it this way: If you are um, what we call members here at Mercy View, a partner, um, you are never to think of your Christian life as somehow disconnected from those who you are joined to spiritually here, which are other partners. So whether it's actively within the church which again is what Paul is primarily talking about today, or activity that we engage in outside of the four walls of the church, we are never to think of our lives as spiritually disconnected from the church that we belong to. Now, Paul illustrates this very provocatively in another letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, and I just want to read this to you and show you how what Paul is doing here in Romans 12 is to, to set the context for the way that you and I are connected. But in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, here's what he says beginning in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, this gets provocative here. Listen. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know, and this is where we start to see this connection, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here's Paul's point. Just like one who engages in this kind of intimacy with someone outside of marriage, what happens when that, ha- when that relationship is engaged in that way, there is a physical and an emotional connection that happens. Doesn't matter if you're married to them or not, the way that, that, that intimacy, the way that sex is created is that you get connected to the person that you are intimate with. In the same way, Paul is saying, That when you join your life with other individuals in the church body, you are connected to them spiritually in a way that you aren't necessarily connected to others in the same way. 
Now, this doesn't mean that if you're here tonight and you're not a, a, a member, a partner with us, um, that, you know, you're not a part of the church. We're, we're talking about two, two different things there. There are members of a local church, and then we're all, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the Big C Church, the universal church. But we're saying that Paul is writing to a local church, a particular group of, of members, partners in that church, and he's saying this, what you do individually always matters corporately. Or we could say it this way, what you do personally as a partner here at Mercy View is always connected to all of the other partners here. They are never mutually exclusive. So Paul is going to start here because as he moves into the next few weeks for how we're to work out this sacrificial worship, and, and a lot of that's going to be stuff that happens outside of the four walls of the church, he wants us to remember that as you go and do that, as we do that, we are a part of something bigger than ourselves, namely the local church that we belong to, and then more broadly, the Big C Church. Now, here's what Paul starts with as we look at um, our uh, passage tonight. Look there again at verse 3. Let me just read it again since uh, this will be it tonight, the only verse we're, we're at. Might as well just read it again. Here, here's a, here it goes. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So I, I want you to notice that Paul starts by saying that uh, what he is about to say is by the grace that has been given to him. Paul is trying to actually model the very thing that he's getting ready to talk about by having the same kind of attitude. Say like, look, what I'm getting ready to say to you, I don't say to you because I'm smart or because I've somehow conjured up in myself humility, but rather because God has given me grace and that has humbled me. And then notice he doesn't give anyone a pass, right? He says, I say to everyone among you, so that means all of us need to have our ears open tonight, and, and then here's Paul's challenge, really. He wants us to think about our thinking. Let me just say that again. He wants us tonight to think about our thinking. We said last week that to pursue a transformed mind, we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. As we do that, our mind is renewed right? Paul apparently wants us to consider again tonight how important our thinking is and how many times thinking in, in opposition to humility actually leads to pride and to boasting, to being puffed up, to thinking too highly of ourselves, which is counter to being a living sacrifice, right? So Paul's going to help us out here. There are three things that he says that uh, we need to think about as we think about our thinking, and they're in interconnected. First is this. He tells us what not to do, right? We are not to be thinking too highly of ourselves. Now, this is a, a very interesting thing to say because Paul could have said, don't think about yourselves at all, right? He could have said, Think humbly about yourself, but rather he said, 
do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. I wonder if you see the assumption that's in that sentence. The assumption is that we do think too highly of ourselves. Like we do it all of the time. In fact, when we think about the inverse of humility, um, what is that? That's pride, right? I don't really know if I've, I maybe could count it on one hand, the, the, the people that I have interacted with at Mercy View who have said, Brad, I need to repent of the sin of pride. It's just not one that, that we think of. I mean, it's not one that we're, we recognize really well. I've had a lot of people, and I have repented to other people about things like anger or, or lust, right? Things that, that seem maybe more obvious, but I've had very few people repent of the sin of pride. And one of the reasons why is because the sin of pride makes you too prideful to see it, right? So... I wonder if you see that assumption in, in this very first part here. The problem with us, the problem with humanity is that after conversion, it's not that we think too lowly of ourselves, it's that we naturally think too highly of ourselves, right? Now second, Paul says that instead of that, instead of thinking about ourselves more highly than we should, we should think about ourselves with sober judgment. And I actually like how uh, another translation says this. It says, we should be honest in our evaluation of ourselves. In other words, we all need to be striving for a balanced, sensible, realistic view of ourselves. Like, doesn't it ever drive you nuts to, to be around some people who are like really proud, like really full of themselves? They seem to have no clue what it's like to live in reality, right? Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek because, friends, you and I, we may see that very easily in other people, but we all struggle with having a realistic view of ourselves. By the way, that's one of the beauties of being a part of a Christian community. It's one of the hardest parts, but when we put ourselves in the way of discipleship, equipping, community in the body, one of the things that, that we're doing is saying, I give you permission to help sharpen me. All right, so like if I'm blind to my own blindness and I need the help of someone else, one of the things that, that, that um, Paul is saying here is one of the ways you get sober judgment is you have other people help you with that. We've got to invite it in. We've got to allow it. But others can help us see ourselves uh, more clearly. Now, there is a third thing that Paul is saying here, too, and it's this, that we should think each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does Paul mean by that? Here's his point. The sober judgment that we just talked about is rooted in and based upon the sovereign grace of God. And really here, Paul is connecting this idea to all that we talked about in the first part of, of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, right? Paul is wanting us to look through the lens of understanding that everything, like it says in Romans 11, is from him, through him, and to him. For in sober judgment comes from having a biblical understanding of who God is and of the source of all of his blessings. 
It's what leads us to humility, all right? You've heard us say this here before, but that theology leads to, to doxology or worship. But tonight, Paul is saying theology, good theology, God-centered theology should lead us to humility as well. Now, again, um, here in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the rest of this passage and how the issue of spiritual gifts and humility go together. And, and again, it's, it's no coincidence that Paul is going to talk about the issue of humility before he talks about spiritual gifts because you and I tend to, again, even as it, like we, we have things that the Lord has gifted us in to, to serve the church, we tend to think we're pretty big deals because of that. Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. You got a total misunderstanding of what the purpose of spiritual gifts are. And one of the main reasons you have the wrong perspective is that you're proud. You're not humble. Remember, he's writing to um, this church in, in Rome, and, and Paul's a pastor. He's a shepherd. And so apparently there was some challenges here, some issues here. Some folks weren't doing this well. But no matter what you're gifted in, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more again in the weeks to come, your giftedness is always and only because of the kindness of God. That is Paul's point here. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't, you didn't do anything to get it. It was given to you as an act of grace from God. And so I, there is a relationship here, right? Pride is kept in check by recognizing that whatever measure of faith you possess, what other gifting you might have, no matter how great it is, no matter how small it is, no matter how public it is or private it is, no matter what it is, it is there because God has assigned to you that very gift. It was his plan. It was his gift. So to understand and use your gifts correctly, again, we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come, you have to think with humility. You have to think humbly about yourself, and you have to think humbly about the gifts that God has given you. So here is what I want to invite you to see. This is just one big idea tonight, uh, and here it is. Grace is the fuel for humility. Grace is the fuel for humility. You think of a, of a car that, that needs gas to, to run, right? The, the car runs out of gas. It can't be driven anymore. In the same way, grace, God's grace coming to you, undeserved, unmerited, is actually the very thing that is meant to, intended to, fuel your humility. So one of the most helpful little books that I, I've um, read on this idea it's 48 pages. I think, John, you gave it to me uh, a long time ago, many moons ago to read and, and to some other brothers here at Mercy View. Made a, an, a, a, a great impact on me is on this issue of humility. It's written by uh, Tim Keller, and it's just this little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And as a way to sort of take what Paul is talking about here and begin to um, like place it over our hearts and, and, and see what, what kind of uh, conviction might be there, places we need to repent of. I want to just pull some, some ideas from, from that little book with you 
um, tonight. And really what Keller does in this little book is it's, uh, he's an unpacking um, 1 Corinthians 4, the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 4. And um, if I could just distill some of this down for us, it, would, it goes like this. First, and we've already said this, the first big idea of this little book is that the, the default of the human heart is not humility. The default of, of our hearts, even on the other side of conversion, if you're a Christian here tonight, is one of pride. In fact, in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians 3 and, and also in another letter that Paul wrote, Colossians, in uh, chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul uses the word pride and the translation of that word is actually a, a very, has a unique um, uh, definition. Uh, it's not what we would typically think of as we think about the word pride. But when Paul uses the word pride in 1 Corinthians 3 and Colossians 2, this is the definition or the translation of that. It's something that is overinflated. Uh, it's something that is swollen, Right? Some, we have a lot of medical professionals here. This will hit home. Um, think of an organ in the human body that is distended because it has too much air pumped into it. Paul is using that word to describe the way in which our pride looks. And I wonder if you've, you've ever thought about this. Do you ever notice that there's, there's things on your body that you don't even think about but help you do certain things. Let, let's just say, for example, your toes. I don't really think probably many of you are thinking like every moment like, okay, my toe, when you're walking, especially you're running, my toes are working, right? You, you just run, you just walk, whatever it, it is that you're doing as you're moving around, right? You, you're not usually thinking about how great your toes are feeling. Now, we only think like that if there was something that was wrong with them, though, right? I think I've told this story here before, but um, I one time stepped on a fork that had been bent up, okay? So like the fork, one of the kiddos had bent it up, and, and I just full-on stepped on that fork. It was not fun. Thankfully, it wasn't too serious, but... I did not walk well for a, a, a bit, you know, it just, it hurt. Um, I didn't think, I didn't think about my foot really a whole lot before I stepped on that fork. But, but when I did and, and I couldn't walk real well after that, uh, I thought about it a lot, right? That's because parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if something is wrong with them. So here's what happens to you and I when we think about this issue of, of pride, um, very often our ego gets hurt. And the reason why we feel that is because we are perceiving that something is wrong with it, right? So we don't think of our ego or our esteem or our identity a whole lot, but whenever it gets punctured, whenever it gets threatened, right, whenever it, it, it gets bothered, um, we start to notice it. And um, I wonder if you've ever heard somebody say, you hurt my feelings, right? You ever heard somebody say that? I've said that. You've probably said that. Um, honestly, that's kind of a silly statement. You can't hurt a feeling. 
It's not a, you know, it's not a, uh, a physical thing. But what we're saying when we say that is this. You've hurt my sense of identity, right? You, you've hurt my ego. There's a sense of self. There's a sense of identity that you and I have. Again, remember the illustration that we just used. Walking around does not hurt our toes until there's already, until there's something wrong with our toes. Your ego would not hurt unless there's something very wrong with it. Um, and and I, I think we need to be really honest about this tonight. There is not uh, a part of a day, typically it's multiple parts of the day, that you and I don't feel slighted by someone or something that we we maybe feel inadequate. Maybe even we would use words like we feel dumb or stupid. Maybe we, we, we really don't get past a day where we aren't getting down on ourselves for, for shame or guilt of some kind. That is because the reason you feel that, the reason that I feel that, is because you know that something is wrong. Something is wrong with your sense of Self. Now, the, the way that you and I normally deal with that, there's a few different ways, but one of the main ways we do this is through something called comparison. Like one of the ways that you and I deal with that insecurity and that pain and that discomfort is we begin to compare ourselves to others. And Keller talks about this in his little book. He references another book, which many of you probably have read. Uh, mere Christianity, but C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says at the very core of the issue of pride for you and I is this issue that we compare ourselves to others. And here's how he says it. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. All right, that's deep, right? But listen, what Lewis is saying is that typically what happens is when you and I are in the presence of someone who is more anything than us, we lose all pleasure in what we have because we really didn't have pleasure in it in the first place. What we were was proud of it. And Lewis says here, pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. It's the pleasure of being more than the next person. And so one of the ways that we deal with this discomfort, this pain, this hurt, is we look to others. We try to make ourselves look better than others. And what Paul is saying what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that that is not humility. That is actually boasting. We're trying to make much of ourselves. We're trying to recommend ourselves to other people. We're trying to create a, a self-esteem. This is what Keller says, a self-esteem resume. Because you and I are desperate to lessen the pain. The problem is we turn to something that doesn't actually solve the problem and compounds it. It makes it worse. Now, here's the second part of Keller's message in his little book. How do we, because this is the question you're probably asking, how do we get to the point 
where we're not controlled by that. That that's not what we turn to whenever we feel that. Now, the, um, this idea that, that we shouldn't care what other people think about a, a us um, is a really hard thing to let go of because we really care about that. And the way that the world tells us to deal with that is to do you. It's actually to have higher self-esteem and to make as much of yourself as you can and not care what other people think. And Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 4, if you go there, it's very different than that. Listen to what he says. This is beginning in verse 3 of, of, of 1 Corinthians 4. It is a very small thing, this is Paul saying this about himself, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What did he call it to be judged by others? A small thing. Actually, he said it's a very small thing. There was an adjective before that. A very small thing. And then he says, look, not only do I not care what you think of me, I don't care what I think of me. I don't judge myself. Paul seems to care very little if he's judged by the Corinthians or by anyone. And then he goes one step further. He's not even going to judge himself. So again, here's what Paul is saying. I not only don't care what you think, I don't care what I think. I not only have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. So what is Paul saying to us? He is saying that to look to the 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 to look to other people to compare ourselves to others to sort of relieve the pain of our need for recognition and approval is a trap. It looks right, seems right, and maybe in the in the short term it feels right. But he he is saying it's a solution that does not deliver, and it is here that I think we see the genius and the wisdom of what Paul is going to point us to, which is where you do find that, where you do find your right sense of self, your right sense of identity. In part, Paul is saying that he himself, here in 1 Corinthians 4, has come to the place where he's not needing to draw any more attention to himself. In fact, he's reached the place where he's not even really thinking about himself anymore at all. He only cares, right, in, in verse, I think it's verse 5, that it is God who judges him. What is that called? What is it called when you can get to the place where the, the person's opinion that you care the most about is the one you care the most about? What is that called? Keller uses this phrase, and I think you know, this is really helpful. It's called gospel humility. Gospel humility. There is a, another passage in Mere Christianity where Lewis makes this amazing observation about gospel humility. It's at the very end of his chapter on pride, and he says that if you and I were to meet someone who's truly humble, you would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not, because they would not be telling you about themselves at all. They would be telling you they're a nobody. They, 
the thing that you would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in you. Why? Because at the core of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. Listen, it's thinking of yourself less. Let me just say that again. This is a, a, just a Keller original right here. It's not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, gospel humility is not needing to think about yourself, to connect everything to yourself. It's, it's walking into a room filled with people and going, how can I love them? How can I serve them? Gospel humility means that, that even in conversations with those people, you are are asking for the Lord's help to, to not connect everything to you. Your experiences, your, com- your conversation is, is focused on them. It's to draw them out. In fact, maybe you even find yourself not thinking about yourself altogether in that room. Now here's one test. It's just as an example. The self-forgetful person is never truly hurt that badly by criticism. Like when you're criticized, what do you feel? I know how I feel. I have to battle like a right off the bat this sense of devastation. Like this stuff we're talking about tonight, feeling less than. Um, but people who have gospel humility or who truly a self-forgetful person, it doesn't keep them up late. It doesn't bother them because they are not putting too much value on what other people think. Now listen. That is not to say we shouldn't listen to constructive criticism from others. In fact, I would actually say a self-forgetful person does that well too when they receive it. But the idea here is that as we begin to think less of our, or think of ourselves less, humility starts to fill the, the gap, starts to, 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 to come in and be a part of the way that you and I are thinking, right? Paul said he wants us to, to think about our thinking. And what Paul is in part saying here is that you need to think of yourself less in order to have right thinking about yourself. So how does Paul say that we get this, right? How does he let us in on the solution, the, the thing that you and I could turn to that will give us this kind of, of humility, Again, he said first in, in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't care what you think. I don't care what others think. I care what God thinks. But then in, in verse 4, he, he also says that his conscience is clear. And that idea that his conscience is clear means that he believes that because of something, um, he has been made innocent. He actually says about himself, um, even though I think my conscience is clear, that's not necessarily what makes me innocent. There's, there's something else. And actually the word innocent comes from the word justify. The word for justify is the same one that Paul uses all throughout Romans. It's really the theme of Romans, the justification of God. And a book like Galatians. And here Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 4 that even if his conscience is clear, that doesn't justify him. What Paul is looking for though is what you and I are all looking for. It is an ultimate verdict. We are looking for someone to tell us that we are 
valuable. We are looking for someone to tell us, you are important. We are looking for an ultimate verdict that that will come to us every day in all the situations and all the different things that we walk through in life. And so here's what that means. It means that every single day you and I are on trial. Now you and I, we put ourselves on trial. Every day we put ourselves in a spiritual courtroom. But do you notice how Paul says that he doesn't even care what the Corinthians think of him, including human courts? <laughs> it's odd that he's talking about courts, right? After all, the Corinthians are not in a court. They're in a church. He's talking metaphorically here. And he's saying that the problem with an overinflated self-esteem or a deflated esteem, thinking of yourselves too lowly, is that every single day you're in the courtroom, every single day you're on trial, that is the way everyone's identity works. Now, what do you have in a courtroom, right? You have prosecution and you have the defense. And everything we do in that courtroom is providing evidence for the prosecution or for the defense. Some days you feel you are winning the trial. And then other days you feel that you're losing it. But Paul says that he has found the secret. The trial, listen, is over for him. He is out of the courtroom. The courtroom's actually gone. There is no courtroom because the ultimate verdict has already come in. See, Paul knew that it was the Lord who judges him. It's the only opinion that counts. And friends, for you tonight, the only opinion that counts is God's. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheists might say that the other way around, right? They get their, maybe their self-image from being a good person. For the Buddhists too, performance leads to the verdict. For the Muslim, so all that means that every day they're in the courtroom, they're on trial, and it's their performance that matters. That is a problem. But Paul is saying that if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. And Paul is saying that in true Christianity, it is the verdict that leads to the performance. It is not the performance that leads to the verdict. Like the moment that you believe, the moment that you place your faith and trust in Jesus, God says to you, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. In, in Christianity, the moment that you believe, God takes Christ's performance, which is perfect, to you imputes it to you as if it were your own and adopts you into his spiritual family. Friends, the verdict is in. And now you get to perform. You get to obey. You get to follow God on the basis of that verdict because he loves you and he accepts you. 
You no longer have to do things to build up your resume. You don't have to do things to make yourself look good. You can now just do them for the joy of doing them. See, Jesus was the one who went on trial instead of us. Jesus went into the courtroom. And it was an unjust trial in a kangaroo court. But Jesus did not complain. And like the lamb before the shears, he was silent. He did not say a word. He was struck. He was beaten. He was put to death. Why? Because of something you heard Sean say earlier. We needed a substitute. We needed someone to stand in the gap for us. And he took the condemnation that you and I deserved. He faced the trial that you and I should have faced. But because he's faced it, you and I need not face any other trials. There is no sense of having to justify ourselves before anyone because the person whose opinion matters the most is settled. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, God looks at you and says, you are my beloved son. You are my my beloved daughter. So when you ask God to accept you because of what Jesus has done, it leads to gospel humility. The only person whose opinion counts looks at you and finds you more valuable than all the jewels in the earth. I don't know how that can't lead us to our knees in worship and gratefulness and humility. And again, don't forget what Paul is doing here. He's saying, hey, that's good for you personally, but the idea of gospel humility is meant to be lived out in the context of a local church as well. So Paul is giving us a clue about an attitude and a posture of the heart that you and I need to remember that works itself out among all of us. And as we pursue this kind of gospel humility because of what Jesus has done for us, we get stronger. Because what I do and the way that I try to interact with you and to to, to do ministry alongside of you in humility, and I do that alongside my brother Chase, who's doing that, and I, I, I do that alongside Libby, and we do that aside, uh, beside one another here at this, in this church. Because we're connected, because we're joined together, that gospel humility begins to build upon itself. And as Ray Ortland says in his little book, the, the church becomes a place that people go, man, I want in on that. So do you want in on that? This is part of the picture, humbling ourselves before the Lord because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you.